Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's the 7th of April in California, and two things seem to be taking place simultaneously. Firstly, the stock markets all around the world are up. Uh, Investors seem to be optimistic about the crisis. On the other hand, we're having more and more reports of mass hunger um, and the enormous suffering of ordinary people around the world as a consequence of this terrible um, illness, uh, both in terms of unemployment and sickness. Uh, Gabriel Zuckman is a distinguished young, I call him young, he's not that young, but he's pretty young, young French economist, uh, the author of some very influential books on global economics, The Hidden Wealth of Nations, and his most recent book, The Triumph of Injustice, which he co-authored with uh, Emmanuel Sainz. Um, uh, Zuckman is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley. Uh, Gabriel, are those two themes, this sort of, the, the, these, these two developments uh, in, 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 in the world of the coronavirus, are they connected? The rising stock markets and the crisis of humanity seemingly occurring simultaneously this week? Um, I think it's difficult, you know, to comment on day-to-day changes in the stock market. So the stock market has has, has declined significantly since the the outbreak of the crisis and you know it's there's just a lot of volatility which reflects the fact that there's just a lot of uncertainty about how the crisis is going to evolve and uh, how long uh, people are going to have to shelter at home and how long uh, businesses are going to be shut down and so that's why we see these uh, uh, quite erratic movements uh in uh, the stock market uh uh, these days, it's an unprecedented crisis with uh, billions of people uh, sheltered at home, uh, with thirty uh, percent or more of the economy uh, on lockdown. This has never happened uh, in the past. Uh, it is completely unprecedented, and so it's just very hard to uh, make predictions about uh, uh, the future, how things are going to evolve. Uh, 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 what are going, what what are going to be the economic and social and political consequences? And I think the volatility of the stock market uh, essentially reflects this fundamental uncertainty. But the injustice that you write about as an economist in your work is borne out in this crisis, isn't it? This is not just some sort of black swan moment, isn't it? Connected with the structural problems of contemporary capitalism? Um, uh, I think the the crisis is um, uh, having uh, 
dramatic consequences is hurting uh, uh, millions, tens of millions of uh, uh, Americans and hundreds of millions, uh, billions of people around the world uh, in ways that uh, uh, could and should have been uh, softened uh, by government intervention. So to put it differently, the crisis is laying bare uh, structural deficiencies in uh, uh, social programs uh, in the U.S. Uh, in particular. Uh, uh, many millions of uh, Americans, for instance, don't have uh, health insurance. Uh, we're already seeing uh, 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 reports of people who died of, uh, of the virus because uh, uh, they didn't seek uh, medical care because they were afraid about the cost, about the bills, about lacking insurance, or sometimes they were denied access uh, to healthcare for lack of insurance. Uh, we are seeing uh, millions of Americans uh, with sharp drops uh, uh, in their income who can't face uh, uh, bills, who can't pay their rent. Uh, and so the crisis is uh, uh, you know, revealing uh, structural deficiencies uh, in the U.S. welfare states. That's one thing. The other thing is that the crisis is going to probably, and although there are lots of uncertainties at that stage, but probably reinforce uh, uh, the rise of inequality that has happened since the 1980s uh, for the very simple reason that um, uh, high-earning professionals uh, are not affected much by the crisis. They can work from home uh, they keep uh, all or most of their income, uh, while uh, uh, low earners uh, are disproportionately affected, or many of them are losing their jobs or are seeing the, their hours drastically reduced. Uh, and uh, so we might see uh, a widening of, uh, of inequality. Uh, in the months uh, ahead. But a lot depends on, on uh, how governments are going to respond to the crisis and nothing is set in stone. Uh, there was a quite ambitious uh, relief package in the US, the CARES Act, with $2.2 trillion, more than 10% of US GDP uh, in uh, emergency relief. Uh, much more should be done. And uh, if more is done, it's, it's possible. Uh, to uh, uh, for governments to address uh, uh, some of the issues that I just described. Before we get to your arguments about the best fixes, um, as an economist, how do you compare the, sever- the, the severity of this crisis uh, in, 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 in the early months of 2020 to the financial crisis of 2008 and indeed the Great Depression of the 1930s? Um, it's more severe. This crisis is more severe at that stage because it's been uh, extremely fast and, and, and brutal. Uh, for public health reasons, uh, about a third of the economy has been shut down uh, from essentially one, one week to the next. And so the decline in outputs, the decline in production, the decline in the number of hours worked uh, has been uh, steeper 
and faster uh, than what happened uh, during the Great Recession, for sure, and even during the Great Depression. So at this stage, it is a more severe crisis. The big uncertainty is uh, whether the recovery is going to be fast or slow. And frankly, nobody knows. This is an unprecedented uh, crisis. Uh, there are some economists who, who are optimistic and they foresee a quick recovery uh, in the third uh, quarter of 2020, fourth quarter of 20, sorry, in the fourth quarter of 2020, uh, that um, all the consumption uh, that's not happening today will happen towards the end of the year. Uh, and uh, in that case, uh, the crisis may not be as uh, deep uh, from an economic perspective as the, the Great Depression was. Uh, but there's a, a less optimistic view uh, according to which uh, the economy is going to remain uh, at least partially on lockdown for many months, uh, maybe uh, even in, uh, at the beginning of 2021. And so we are in it for uh, you know a long uh, slump uh, with potentially dramatic uh, economic and social costs. Uh, we don't know yet. Uh, and uh, so it's too soon to compare that crisis to other uh, major crises of the past. Uh, Gabrielle, in Triumph of Injustice, you argued that the American taxation system in particular was deeply regressive. It, it, it benefited the wealthy over the poor. Um, you argue that healthcare uh, was one area, privatized healthcare, that, uh, that compounded inequality. How do you, how would you like to see healthcare reformed out of this crisis? Well, uh, in the case of the U.S., it's pretty simple. The U.S. is the only country uh, among uh, high-income countries that doesn't have uh, universal health insurance, uh, and so of course, and it's. Uh, it's been true before the crisis, and it's even more true today. The U.S. badly needs uh, universal uh, health uh, insurance. Uh, uh, at the very, very least, uh, it needs uh, what you could call a, a COVID care for all program. It needs to ensure that every uh, U.S. resident, uh, no matter uh, you know their employment status, uh, no matter their uh, immigration status, no matter their age, every each and every U.S. resident should uh, have access to uh, uh, COVID-19 related care uh, for free. Uh, that's like a, a very basic and minimum uh, step that needs to be taken to uh, uh, slow the spread of the of the virus. But uh, longer term, uh, uh, and, and, and looking at the bigger picture, uh, the, the key change that needs to happen is the U.S. needs universal health insurance. What about when it comes to tax reform? Uh, you're one of the world's leading experts on, on both corporate and individual tax. You've called very explicitly for profound reform of, of the U.S. tax system. How would you like this crisis to change uh, the debate about both corporate and individual taxation? Um, so, well, to, to address that, to answer that question, we need to 
take a small step back and 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 first uh, uh, describe briefly how the tax system in the U.S. Uh, looked like uh, on the eve of the crisis. So if you look at the year 2018, and if you uh, uh, try to compute the effective tax rate paid by each group of the population, uh, taking into account all taxes at all levels of government, what you can see is that uh, the U.S. tax system is essentially a giant flat tax where each group of the population, the working class, the middle class, the upper middle class, and so on, roughly pays the same effective tax rate, about 28% of their income in taxes, with just one main exception, which is billionaires. Uh, Billionaires have a lower effective tax rate of 23%, lower than the working class, lower than the middle class. So the U.S. tax system is a giant flat tax that becomes regressive at the very top end. And this is not sustainable. Uh, This is an engine of inequality. Uh, and this was true before the crisis, and it's even more true, it's going to be even more true in the aftermath of the crisis, uh, since uh, uh, the crisis uh, risks uh, uh, deepening uh, inequality. And so uh, there is a need for addressing this tax injustice, and there are many ways to do that. In our book, The Triumph of Injustice, with uh, Emmanuel says, we make a number of concrete proposals One proposal is uh, for the U.S. to create a federal wealth tax on the very wealthiest Americans. Um, Why is a wealth tax necessary? Well, because a wealth tax is the proper way to tax billionaires. You have uh, many billionaires today who have, of course, a ton of wealth, but they pay very little in income taxes. Um, The most striking example is uh, Warren Buffett. He's the main shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway, and he instructs this company not to pay dividends. And so uh, his only taxable income is when he sells a few shares of Berkshire Hathaway and realizes a bit of capital gains. And that's a taxable income of just a few million dollars. And so he just pays a few million dollars in taxes each year which is tiny compared to uh, his wealth of uh, $60 billion. Um, And uh, uh, Warren Buffett is not an exception. You look at Jeff Bezos, you look at Mark Zuckerberg, you look at the Google founders, all of them own tens of billions of dollars in wealth, and yet they pay only a tiny amount of tax each year. Uh, With a wealth tax on the stock of wealth itself, uh, they would contribute much more to the public coffers. Uh, they would pay in proportion to their ability to pay. And so in my view, the most direct and powerful and meaningful way to address tax injustice in the U.S. and to prevent wealth inequality from increasing further is to have uh, a progressive wealth tax on the very wealthiest Americans. How would you respond to the argument of some that billionaires paying much of their fortune into the state only results in inefficiency and waste? And it, it's it's a much more sensible solution to have somebody like Bill Gates directly invest his fortune 
in finding cures for the coronavirus or addressing world hunger and other diseases. Um, that is the tradition in America of billionaires, of the wealthy, giving back to society uh, through their own initiatives, through their own innovation, rather than through the state. Does that work at all? Yeah, I don't think that's actually the the, the true American tradition. I think uh, maybe it's true uh, uh, since the 1990s, but if you look at uh, the situation in the U.S. from the 1930s to the 1980s, uh, the wealthy faced very high tax rates. The U.S. tax system was extremely progressive uh, with top marginal income tax rates of more than 90% in the 1950s and early 1960s, with top estate tax rate of close to 80% on average from the 1930s to 1980s, with corporate income tax rates of 50% uh, uh, in the middle of the 20th century for several decades. Uh, and that's the, that's a uniquely American tradition. Uh, and, and, you know, in Europe, in continental Europe, no country ever had top marginal income tax rates of 90%. So the U.S. used to make the wealthy contribute a lot, uh, to, uh, government funding. Uh, this has changed uh, starting in the, in the 1980s, but the true American tradition and what we're trying to, to do in our book, The Triumph of Injustice, is to help people reconnect with that American tradition. The true American tradition is a tradition where, uh, the, uh, where billionaires, where the, the wealthiest Americans face very high tax rates. And the reason for that. Uh, it's a tradition that dates back to at least the American Revolution. Uh, you read, for instance, someone like, like James Madison, the, the father of the U.S. Constitution, who is still a hero today for, for conservatives. Uh, James Madison uh, writes in the late 18th century that uh, excessive wealth concentration is uh, corrosive uh, threatens the sustainability of Republican uh, institutions. Why? Because wealth is power. Uh, it's the power to influence markets. Uh, it's the power to influence public policies. Uh, it's the power to influence the democratic process. And so an extreme concentration of wealth means an extreme concentration of power. And uh, if you want uh, democracy to be sustainable, to be preserved, you need to have policies that will prevent uh, too extreme a concentration of wealth. That's what the U.S. successfully did for half of the 20th century. Uh, and um, I think it could do it again, and other countries could, uh, could, could do it uh, in the 21st century. Uh, Gabrielle, you're stuck in Berkeley. Uh, we're actually neighbors here in California. Um, you're not teaching. You're stuck at home with a small child. Uh, what are you reading at the moment to, to keep you sane? Uh, maybe Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which you seem to echo in some of your ideas. Are there other books that people should be rereading? 
historical books, perhaps Madison, the Federalist Papers? Uh, I know. I, I recommend, you know, uh, the new book by Piketty, Capital and Ideology, that was released uh, in English uh, early March. Uh, a very long book, you know, thousand pages book. So it's good reading for this uh, uh, period of sheltering. And that's very much a book about history, you know, the, the history of inequality uh, regimes, you know, and how different societies have uh, tried to justify uh, inequality, uh, you know, looking at, at uh, uh, slave societies, looking at uh, uh, 19th century uh, uh, England, looking at uh, contemporary uh, uh, India, you know, taking a global and historical perspective. So it's a really fascinating book uh, about the interplay between uh, 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 inequality and, and democracy and the power of ideas. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.